Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thank you, Jake, and another cracking show sitting in for the great Alan Jones. I'll have some more to add to your points about compromises to our freedom and our federation under Scott Morrison later in the show. Good evening. You are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. To watch our content, both live and on demand, all you need to do is download the app for your phone or TV at your usual app store. You can also find all our shows as podcasts wherever you download your audio programs. Well, if we've learned anything during the past two and a half years, it is that politicians no longer want to keep us free, they just want to keep us safe. And don't they love reminding us about it? Any chance to publicly and proactively protect us from the scary world, they seize it with both hands. So it wasn't a surprise to see Victorian Premier Dan Andrews and his new mate, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, stealing the limelight at the launch of a new medical production facility at Mon Monash University this week. The facility, which will be run by US pharmaceutical multinational Moderna, will be able to produce 100 million vaccines a year. How much this partnership cost Australian taxpayers, Albo and Dan weren't saying. All we really needed to know, Albo thought, was that this facility would, quote, safeguard the nation against future public health crises. Unquote. There are now very good reasons to be sceptical about whether this is necessary and whether Australians are as afraid of future hypothetical crises as they were, say, two years ago. But while Albo was triumphantly protecting us against them anyway, a very real one was continuing to unfold in the present. This month, the Therapeutic Goods Administration reported there were more than 340 medicines in short supply in Australia, including medicines for heart disease, asthma, multiple sclerosis and diabetes. This list has been growing for two years, so it's not as if our politicians weren't aware of it. A lot of them can be blamed on supply chain problems because we get our medicines from overseas. But protecting us from ordinary old diseases isn't very sensational, so they ignore it, and the people who need medicine some of them desperately go without. But hey, Albo's got those future crises covered. So we have a great show for you tonight at the end of a week dominated by the strange revelations about former Prime Minister Scott Morrison secretly helping himself to five federal ministries. We've got Professor David Flint to analyze what this means for our constitution. We'll also talk to Nick Cater about the history of our relationship with China. Now let's get into it. Only a year ago, Victorian Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton said of the COVID vaccine, quote, prioritize it like your life depends on it. 
because your life does very much depend on it, unquote. How much is very much? Well, not much at all, as it happens. Obviously, um, despite two, three, four doses of the vaccine, uh, it's not so good at preventing infection in the first place. So we are getting infected. That's why we've had uh, tens of thousands of cases in this wave. The vaccines have proven to be so ineffective they can't even protect the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Buller. On Monday, the company released a statement confirming he had caught the virus despite having been jabbed four times with his own company's product. The statement said he was, quote, grateful to have received the jabs, but seemed reluctantly to state explicitly, as has been the custom lately, that the vaccine had directly reduced the severity of the infection. It said, quote, we have come so far in the past two years in our efforts to battle this disease that I am confident that I will have a speedy recovery, unquote. This is a long way from the certainty and the guarantees with which we were sold the vaccines only as, only as recently as a year ago. It is increasingly clear that the vaccines are ineffective, which means the companies and governments that forced people to take them did so for no reason. When I was co coerced into it by my previous employer, I was told that if I didn't get jabbed and turned up for work, the government might shut the company down. Whether this was true or not was difficult to know, but the company went along with it anyway. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, said, quote, no one is forced to do anything in this country. People will make their own decisions. If they are legally able to go and get a vaccine and someone is legally able to provide that vaccine and they can provide informed consent to that end, well, that is a matter between the pharmacist and that individual, unquote. It's also a matter with their employer and the police as it happens because people were getting sacked and locked up in their homes for not being vaccinated. It's also increasingly clear that these vaccines can cause serious adverse reactions, including myocarditis and pericarditis, which are long-term and seriously debilitating. Even the people who have so far luckily been spared any adverse reactions are still in the dark. As American biologist Brett Weinstein, one of the world's leading critics of mRNA vaccines, warned almost two years ago, the long-term consequence of these vaccines are unknown and they will surprise us. The role that Big Pharma played in this is easy to explain. It made billions of dollars from the enforced vaccination of healthy people. And government's role is also easy to understand. The steadily encroaching safetyism in nominally free Western democracies created a demand for governments that didn't simply manage state affairs, they protected the citizenry from whatever fears they imagined were threatening them. But it's the role of the media that is almost impossible to explain. For generations, the business model of the media has been to challenge the powerful on behalf of its viewers and readers. Businessmen, politicians, and any other powerful elites who sought undeserved power over the media's customers were brought to account. But recently, as new technology and media startups threatened the legacy media's hegemony, the old outlets, for some reason, became part of the elite themselves, not representing their audience, but talking down to them. This became blindingly obvious during the pandemic. 
It was no surprise that the leftist groups like the ABC and Channel 9 backed the fear campaign and the supposedly virtuous collective response of mass vaccination. Spreading paranoia and ordering people around is what leftist journalists do. But News Corp? The company that for decades has worn the vitriol of leftists as a badge of honour and a testament to its adherence to robust freedom of speech? I've been in journalism for 30 years, most of it proudly at News Corp. It's a company I've defended countless times as a stalwart of pluralism and independence. Defying the zeitgeist of pushing a pointless vaccine against the exaggerated threats of a mostly harmless virus would have, for most of the time I worked at the company, been a no-brainer. But mysteriously, news decided to run with the herd. It still published some contrarian opinions, mostly by people like Chris Kenny and Steve Waterson of The Australian, whose brilliant ability to mercilessly ridicule Australia's new generation of authoritarians attracted a cult-like following. But for the most part, news stuck to the narrative. The virus will kill you and only selfish people don't get vaccinated. I might be exaggerating only slightly. Some of those selfish people who worked for the company lost their jobs as a result. The consequence of this for adults should be bad enough. But when history comes to judge the greedy, the willfully ignorant and the powerful elites who imposed this ridiculous lockdown and these vaccines on us, it will be the jabbing of kids that attracts the most visceral disgust. Kids were never at risk from the virus. But in a piece titled, Should My Five-Year-Old Get the Coronavirus Vaccine? The Sydney Morning Herald said, quote, In a word, yes, unquote. The piece specifically recommended Pfizer. That was in December last year. Three months later, the same newspaper was saying the effectiveness of Pfizer in the 5 to 11 age group was just 12%. Since the Center for Disease Control in the United States said there was now no difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated, the true figure we now know is actually zero. I can't imagine how the parents who believed the media and dutifully jabbed their kids back then feel now. I wouldn't like to be the executive of a company or a minister of a government that coerced these vaccines on us when the class action lawsuits start being filed. Last week, the Victorian government announced it will celebrate LGBTQ pride over a new two month long festival that organizers hope will rival Sydney's Mardi Gras. To fund the festival, the taxpayers will dole out $6.8 million Celebrations will also now take place in regional Victoria because members of the LGBTQ community felt existing events were too Melbourne-centric. Uh, good luck with that. The two-month Pride Festival will also run from December to February, just as families settle down to enjoy the birth of Jesus Christ and the passing of the new year. Hasn't Victoria been, enough, been through enough already, Dan? Right now, Melbourne's CBD is a ghost town. Small businesses are on the brink of bankruptcy and your state is more indebted than it's ever been. Nothing to be proud of, really. 
But then again, nothing that two months of pride won't fix. Such is the paradoxical world of Victorian politics. If this had been a family festival planned two years ago, the authoritarians in Parliament would have shut it down quicker than you could say get vaxxed. But now, in the middle of a monkeypox panic, the effect only, that affects only the type of people who attend gay festivals, the government is pumping money into it and running the rainbow flag up its flagpole. And don't you love all this emphasis on pride? Why do they need to constantly tell us they're proud of themselves? Is there any doubt that they are? If all this pride is a reaction to their being oppressed, that boat has sailed. Saying you're a proud member of a supposedly oppressed minority is just so passe these days. If you want to be edgy, say you're a proud straight white man, or a proud parent for having contributed to the continuation of our species, or a proud farmer who puts food on other people's tables, or a proud cop who keeps crooks off the street, or a proud overpaid government bureaucrat who spends millions of dollars of other people's money on pointless virtue signaling festivals. Actually, nah, scratch that last one. There's probably already a float for that in the Mardi Gras. Now, there's been a lot of anger and anguish this week about former Prime Minister Scott Morrison supposedly signing himself in as the minister for five federal portfolios. And it must be said that much of it is justified. These decisions, whether they amount to a signing in or not, were done in private. Not only was the public prevented from knowing about them, but the members of parliament who already held those portfolios were also kept in the dark. Morrison himself did little to quell this animosity by replying to the controversy in a Facebook post, then fronting the media and answering questions with his customary condescension. It takes a lot to make Anthony Albanese look good by comparison, but ScoMo managed to do that this week. My next guest, Professor David Flint, who is one of the nation's leading constitutional commentators, is going to shed some very bright light on this matter. Essentially, Professor Flint believes Morrison's behaviour was neither illegal nor even suspicious, but it did expose an aspect of our governance that is, and which should make us all even more angry and anguished. It goes like this. Our constitution was written, written to include checks and balances against excessive power residing in single members of parliament, specifically ministers. To ensure this, the Constitution establishes an Executive Council, consisting of selected senior members of Parliament. It's from the Executive Council that the ministers are effectively selected. The Founders assumed the practice of all significant regulations must be passed from the Minister to the Executive Council, which will then approve it. This was one of the checks against individual MPs accreting too much power. But the flaw, if you could call it that, was in the power of politicians to legislate to avoid the Executive Council and to make the minister and the minister to make the regulations himself. At the same time, they would legislate to remove another significant check. This was the power of the House to disallow the regulation. Professor Flint says governments of either parties obviously considered the checks and balances of Executive Council and of either House to disallow regulation, an irritating formality and best dispensed with. Which brings me back to Morrison. Whether he awarded himself more power would have been inconsequential if the convention of Executive Council had been adhered to. 
So to elaborate on all this, let's bring in Professor David Flint. Professor Flint, welcome to the show. Thank you, I'm delighted to be here. Now let's start at the beginning. When members of parliament are, quote, sworn in as ministers, what does that mean? Well, actually they're sworn in as executive councillors. And then you effectively have a pool of people from which the governor general on the advice of the prime minister can direct that they, they take over specific departments of state. So think of a pool being sworn in and then that pool being available to the prime minister to allocate to different portfolios. And that's what happens from time to time because of changes in the government. The prime minister will want to change the way in which people are running portfolios and he changes people around. This is done by a direction. They're already sworn in. Now, what Mr. Morrison did was to uh, direct uh, that he himself take over certain portfolios, sharing them with other ministers. A little strange, rather bizarre, but not unconstitutional. It wasn't good practice from a political point of view, not to tell his colleagues, and certainly not to tell the public, he should have done both. These are really political questions rather than constitutional questions. What he did wasn't unconstitutional, but it shows up a terrible weakness that has been occurring. And this is that what uh, politicians have done in legislation was to avoid those two checks and balances that you referred to. Firstly, that the matter would go to the Executive Council, and secondly, the power of disallowance. Now, that first one that is referring to the Executive Council meant that another person would decide whether this was within power, that is, the Governor or the Governor-General. The Governor would have to be satisfied that he or she had the power to do what was being proposed. And when this has happened in the past, there have been occasions they're not made public, but there have been many occasions where a governor or governor general has said, really, I don't think I can do that, I, or I want reassurance that I have that power, or that some condition has been fulfilled. And that's a very good check and balance. It wasn't one which applied in relation to the live cattle ban, where the minister himself decided to have an absolute ban of sending live cattle both to safe abattoirs in Indonesia which were humane and other abattoirs. He could have just restricted it to the inhumane or suspicious abattoirs in Indonesia. He did that himself and now we're loaded with massive damages from the people who suffered because the judge found that this was misfeasance in public office. He can went you, beyond those powers. Can, can you just elaborate on that? In that specific instance, instance about live cattle trade, how did that defy the constitutional checks and balances uh, in place, specifically to do with the Executive Council? Well, it was assumed in semi-colonial times when we had self-government, but we still had governors who had authority because they were here representing the empire as well as being local monarchs, as it were, they would still check whether they had the power to do something which was being proposed. And what the minister there did was he just made up his own mind. He thought he had sufficient power 
to have this blanket ban. Well, he didn't have that. The judge found that the export legislation didn't give him that absolute power. And I saw that in relation to the, the pandemic. For example, there were, we weren't allowed to travel overseas and uh, a family asked me about that. They said, well, we want to go home. We're, we're very old. <clears throat> we want to go to our country and spend our time there. And they, they weren't allowed to because there was a blanket ban. And that was based on provisions in the Biosecurity Act, which said that the minister or the government would ensure that the virus wasn't spread to other countries. The way to do that was just to have a test before you leave, not to have a blanket ban saying that only with the approval of the government could you go overseas. And they were letting politicians go overseas, they were letting big business people overseas, but ordinary people couldn't leave the country, particularly this family that wanted to be with their own. And one of them died during the pandemic and wasn't able to see their family. So are you saying that it was governments ignoring the Executive Council that allowed, enabled governments during the past two years to impose those severe lockdowns? Well, it's really legislation, it's parliament. It's upper houses not paying attention to what they're passing and not noticing that the minister has these powers instead of it being the governor general or the governor where you get another person looking at these things, but also they've done away with the disallowance power of the Senate, for example, so that you, what you've created is a series of very authoritarian ministers with enormous powers. But just to be clear, these are ministers legislating these powers to themselves. Is that what you're saying? Well, governments allowing a minister to get those powers and parliaments being foolish enough, particularly upper houses, letting them go through. There's a Senate report on this, a very recent Senate report on this, and they report that 20% of the very important regulations and directives and so on were not disallowable. And uh, I think there was unanimity in that Senate committee on both sides of Parliament that that shouldn't happen. Well, it happened under the control of both parties. So let's just bring this back to Scott Morrison. A lot of the controversy uh, this week has been uh, 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 over him allegedly swearing himself in, or David Hurley swearing him in, to these portfolios. Is that not the case? Well, he was already sworn in. Exactly. He He's was a... an executive councillor. Yes. There's just a directive. And this is not a matter, this is not done in the executive council. This is just done by the prime minister advising the governor general to change portfolios or to add to portfolios within the government. A completely normal activity, except the unusual thing was it was the prime minister putting himself in with other ministers. I assume that the Governor-General probably thought that uh, the Prime Minister would be telling the other ministers and would be making the whole thing public by ensuring that this appeared in the Gazette. Apparently it didn't happen and that's rather strange. So just to be absolutely clear, the standard practice according to our constitution is to select the Executive Council from which the Prime Minister selects whoever he wants in various ministries and he can shuffle them around at will and even apply some of those ministries to himself. But it's the fact that legislation has sidestepped the Executive Council that is the bigger issue here, is that? Yes, and sidestepped disallowance. And disallowance, so, exactly, so yes. We're, we're effectively letting one person make a law, which is extraordinary because these regulations have the effect of law and they should be subject to checks and balances. 
And we should also see the reasons. We had, for example, in New South Wales, an extraordinary decision taken by a minister in the Berejiklian government who closed down the building industry, the construction industry in all of New South Wales at a cost of 1.4 billion. And the chief health officer said she didn't advise it. We still don't know where the advice came from. So that's, so that's one aspect of, of the secrecy. The, but the controversy this week, David, has been that David Hurley and Scott Morrison had supposedly created um, uh, ministerial powers for Scott Morrison in secret. That's irrelevant, but it's the powers that are being uh, abused in secret. That's the secret that is the most controversial uh, to you. Uh, yes, I think the really, the really significant thing is we've given a lot of ministers enormous powers and we've taken away the two significant checks and balances, which were assumed to be in place, which were certainly in place when the founders established our Commonwealth. They saw it in the, in the States, they saw them functioning, and they thought that this is how it would function. You can't put everything into a constitution, but I think there's now obvious need to put something to protect us against this in the Constitution. Much more important than having a history lesson in the Constitution. We'll get to that, we'll get to that in a second, but mm. talking about upholding the Constitution, that's the Governor-General's role, isn't it? I mean, has all this compromising with the Constitution and, and sort of manipulating the various powers available to MPs, has that happened under the Governor-General's watch? It has happened under other, mainly other governors general, uh, but they couldn't stop it because the, the practice is, the, it is generally conceded that unless something outrageous is presented in legislation, a governor general gives assent to legislation which is passed through the two houses. The fault lies more with the Senate or the upper house of a given parliament of letting these things go through. Okay, so there's, there's an increasing uh, manipulation or even abuse of power. David, are our politicians showing any sign that they are prepared to relinquish any of this power? Well, I haven't seen anything like that. We put this uh, in an organisation that I'm involved in, Australians for Constitutional Monarchy. We put this to the government when we had the opportunity of seeing the Assistant Minister for the Republic. We said, fixing this up, is the most important constitutional issue rather than the two that you have put on the constitutional change agenda. David Flint, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's David Flint with a very relevant and insightful look into the constitutional debates of the week. Now, how far back does our relationship with China go? Most people would say it started with the estimated 40,000 plus Chinese miners who came to Ballarat, Victoria, looking for gold in the mid 19th century. Anyone not aware of that spike in migration would probably say it started instead with Gough Whitlam's first visit to Beijing as leader of the federal opposition in 1971. Whitlam even beat Richard Nixon, whose visit in 1972 famously resumed harmonious relations between the US and the emerging communist dictatorship. Whitlam visited again in 1973 as the newly elected Prime Minister and was granted a 90-minute audience with Mao Zedong, which reflected the importance China has had in Australian diplomacy ever since. 
But according to Hu Jintao, who was Chinese president from 2003 to 2013, the relationship goes back centuries before Whitlam and even before the Chinese gold miners. Who told a joint sitting of the Australian Parliament in October 2003 that, quote, back in the 1420s, the expeditionary fleets of China's Ming Dynasty reached Australian shores. For centuries, the Chinese sailed across vast seas and settled down in what they called Southern Land, or today's Australia. They brought Chinese culture to this land and lived harmoniously with the local people, contributing, to their, contributing their proud share to Australia's economy, society, and its thriving pluralistic culture, unquote. Who was not an expansionist ruler of China? And so this comment, the veracity of which is still being debated by historians anyway, passed without much scrutiny. But it would be fair to say that alarm bells would ring if his successor, Xi Jinping, said it. China's ambitions in the region are no longer merely to interact with the region, but to dominate and even occupy it. Any reminder that it had, quote, contributed to Australia's economy, society and culture would today be interpreted as having ancient colonial overtones. It's a reflection of how much the Australian-Chinese relationship has changed, not just over the past two centuries, but over the past two decades. To make some sense of it, let's bring in my colleague and regular Thursday night guest, Nick Cater of Nick Cater's Battleground, which you can see every Friday night at 8pm here on ADH. Nick, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you, Fred. Now, let's talk about Gough Whitlam re-establishing diplomatic relations with Mao Zedong and China 50 years ago this December. Was Whitlam brilliantly advancing the interests of world peace or was he naively kowtowing to a brutal dictator and murderer of tens of millions of his own people? Yeah, well, yeah I look back at the history of this because I, I was after the, you know, the Chinese ambassador gave his press club speech the other week and said, you know, basically, Australia, you've signed up to this one China policy. You agree with us that Taiwan is a province of China. So I thought, where does this come from? And it comes from the agreement that, um, that Gough Whitlam's government signed with China. You know, it was less than three weeks after Gough Whitlam came to power. He was desperate to get this thing in and uh, it went through in a hurry. Uh, and yeah, sure enough, what he did was to say in the document, essentially, we acknowledge China's position that uh, they believe that uh, Taiwan is a province and uh, we will withdraw our embassy from Taipei by January 20, 1973 and we'll move it to Peking, as it then was called. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's in that document. There's no doubt about it. And uh, I, did he have to do that? Well, of course not, because at that stage, of course, there were lots of... Uh, the West was really reconnecting with China. China wanted to open up. They were making overtures all over the place. Uh, Canada, I think, was the first Western nation to do it about two years earlier. And then, as you mentioned, that famous Nixon goes to China expedition out of that came an agreement but it seems to me no other country at the time went as far as Whitlam you know at least the US when it resumed relations with uh, with uh, Beijing was insistent that they should also have relations with uh, with Taipei and they kept their embassy there for some time it was only when Jimmy Carter came to power that he changed all that but there was you know uh, so it's whether you go over the one China policy or the two China policy and uh, you know, Whitlam jumped straight in boots and all with the one China policy uh, which really basic, it basically did surrender uh, Taiwan. 
So Whitlam is a bit of a pioneer on this diplomatic front. Does this, does this make this a shameful moment in our past, Nick? Well, let's say it was just an excess of exuberance by Whitlam, <laughs> as in so many things. And uh, uh, I just don't think he thought... And look, if you look back to that time, Fred, it was very different. I mean, Taipei had a... In Taiwan, they had a, a military junta basically in charge of the joint. And, the, you know, it wasn't exactly the most freest country on earth. Uh, and China's making noises that it's going to open up with all those promises that came there. Because what's happened since changes the, the map completely. You know, China has reaffirmed that they've, they've taught us that the new communists are just like the old ones, i.e., you know, tyrannical. They don't care. You know, they put the lives of their own people uh, ahead of the, what they see as the, you know, the security of the state. So that they're the same. That in fact, they've got worse and they've now got a huge military and they, they're really a real threat to world peace. Whereas Taiwan has just turned into the most glorious, brilliant, uh, freedom-loving democracy. I mean, they, I was there incidentally for the first directly elected presidential elections in 1996. And we went, as journalists, we always go where we think there's going to be trouble. And we thought this would be a disastrous election with violence on the street. Nothing like it. They were all out there celebrating. It was party time. The only, uh, the only violence came from the Chinese who decided to lob some missiles into the, uh, into the sea just off the coast. And, and so, you know, that means that now, well, who do we stand with? Obviously, we stand with Taiwan and, and, there's, and you know, we have to support their, their, what I think is a justifiable right to be in a sovereign state. Well, you, you mentioned the continuity of the uh, dictatorial nature of the Chinese government, but there was a moment, a brief moment under Hu Jintao when it looked like that was going to cool down a little bit. Let's talk, let's talk now about Hu Jintao's historic speech to the joint sitting of the Australian Parliament in 2003. He was excessively gracious towards Australia at that time. And as former Prime Minister John Howard said on Alan Jones' show here last night, he enjoyed a very close relationship with Hu in those days. Hu was deeply interested in Western culture and was even somewhat of an expert on Shakespeare. And so in his speech, he proposed four ways for the Australia-China relationship to continue to flourish. Political, which included the increasing liberalisation of China under Hu, mutually beneficial trade, cultural exchange that respects the diversity of human civilization, and mutual trust on security matters. Nick, which, if any of those four aspects of the relationship is still working? Well, uh, we haven't, certainly haven't seen the opening up of, uh, of freedoms in China. Uh, I think under, under Howard, he, he was there in a, in, a, in a really little golden period when we, you know, when I think we were in any, any doubt by that point that nothing was much was going to change in terms of the communist grip on, on China. And, and, you know, if anybody was in any doubt of what sort of country it was after, after Tiananmen Square in, in June 1989, they must have had blinkers on. But Howard managed to have this great relationship where they basically agreed to part their differences on human rights and, and various other things and get on and have a very strong trading relationship and, and a good cultural relationship, you know, exchanging our orchestras went up there. I don't know if the Bell Shakespeare Company went up there. But it was a great period, and, and that's really only changed in the last four years, and we've now entered this really difficult period uh, and in which China's taking a much more belligerent attitude, and, and we, it's hard to live by you know, the sort of easygoing uh, approach that the Howard government was able to adopt. 
Oh, I'm interested to get your insights into what it was like in Taiwan in 96. I mean, what, what was the reception for an Australian, I mean, you're not fully Australian, an Australian what pom. What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> well, an Australian with a pommy accent. Yeah. What was the reception like in 96 for you? Look, it was fantastic. I mean, my experience, of, I was based in Hong Kong and I travelled a lot in China, mainland China, which, which I'd grown to really fear and detest, especially after one particular incident where I was held in detention overnight in my hotel room by a lot of uh, uh, rather nasty men who, th who thought I was a journalist, funnily enough. I don't know how they got that impression. But, um, but by contrast, you know, Taiwan was just such a, a friendly, open and warm civil society. Uh, and the interesting thing is, because they're basically, you know, the, the, the Chinese in, in, in Taiwan come from the basically the same stock. I mean, they're, they're, so it just goes to show that the influence I think that communism has had on, on mainland China of really uh, just undermining the civil uh, fabric and a civic fabric and making people suspicious of one another and uncomfortable, you know, if, if, if a beggar falls down in the street in China, nobody would go to his aid because they'd think it was some sort of stunt, uh, some sort of sting and they'd be accused of pushing this guy over and demanded all, all sorts of money would be demanded. And the result of which people just don't trust people in, in China because of the communist dictatorship, whereas in, in um, Taipei, it was just a wonderfully warm and free and open society. And I, I loved it in comparison at that time. But I just want to, want to get your impression on what they thought of Australians. I mean, I know we ask that question a lot, but, but did, did the Taiwanese sort of see us as kindred spirits? Oh, very much so. And, uh, you know, they want, they're very open and trading people and, and, uh, and they loved any contact with China, and we've had, a, of course, a good trade office, we had contact with Australia. We've had a marvellously active trade office there, possibly the most active trade office in the world, which is, you know, essentially a sort of de facto embassy, uh, which, which uh, we, you know, they were very warm towards uh, its presence because that, but just by being there as a trade office, that's a degree of support that they're getting, which they, you know, was suddenly taken away from them. It was dramatic how the UN uh, decided to withdraw um, their status as a UN member back in 1971. Uh, the Australian government, at that, that time a coalition government, protested against it. They said we should keep diplomatic recognition of Taiwan and that they should be a part of the UN. It's fine bringing you know, the other China, the People's Republic in, but why couldn't there be two Chinas? But the UN was sort of thoroughly stacked in China's favour and against the US, and that's what they did. They just summarily took away their right to be on the UN. And you know the irony of that now, when you look back, Fred, you know, the UN is very keen to have Palestine as a state, right? So they, <laughs> but, not, but not Taiwan. It, it sort of says something about the UN. So if China invades Taiwan, should we defend it? Oh, I think so, definitely. I'm, well, you know, we, we don't actually have much we can defend it with. You know, what are we going to go out there with boomerangs or something? And we don't have any submarines, which is the point Jim Molan is continually making and does in his new book. But we need to be with them, certainly uh, giving them all the support we can, even if it's just moral support, I think, or logistics support or whatever we can do. You know, I, there's no reason why you can't have two independent countries, one called China and the other one an island, which as far as I know, is never, China's never really had an legitimate claim to anyway. Well, there was a survey conducted by the Institute of Public Affairs recently 
that found an alarming number of Australians wouldn't even fight to defend Australia. <laughs> so, I mean, we, it might be a tall order sending someone up to Taiwan to, to defend that island. But finally, Nick, let's get round to our favourite woke moments of the week. Now, please tell me, what's our old friend Thomas the Tank Engine been up to this week? He's in trouble, as you can imagine. Uh, he had this coming. We should have seen this coming. I mean, you know what it's like. Four years ago, they, they changed, they took two male engines out of the cast and put in two females uh, and an Indian. And you know where this is going, right? You know, it's sooner or later they were going to come for the fat controller. I'm sorry to use the F word, but the fat controller, of course, to, to even use that word is the fat shame these days. We're supposed now to call him by his proper name, which is Sir Topham Hat. And, uh, and I hope you'll stick to that rule, Fred, from now on. <laughs> Perhaps we should call him the, the, the short for his weight controller. <laughs> In fact, actually, controller's probably a bit strong too. Isn't he a consultant? <laughs> yes, he would be a consultant, wouldn't he? The, 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 the chip consumption challenge. Chips <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>, consultant. <laughs> My favourite moment of the week, woke moment of the week, would have to be Joan of Arc as non-binary at the Globe Theatre in London. <laughs> Uh, well, everyone knows. I mean, Joan of Arc wore men's clothes, which yeah, was a yeah. heresy, and that's why she had to die. But uh, if if she was non-binary, then that would wouldn't that suggest that people who are non-binary today would also be prepared to die for their cross-dressing habits? Oh yeah, I, I'm sure they would. Uh, <laughs> but it's an interesting question: What would you die for? Yes. And and most of the causes that get promoted these days. Not, you know, the things that you it come at no cost. You've just got to wear the wristband or put the T-shirt on. That's all it costs you. you know? Well, that's a very good point, Nick. And it, I mean, coincidentally, it, 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 it's re it relates to that IPA survey. survey. I mean, <laughs> there's not many things people would die for at all left anymore. What, no. uh, what's left of our culture? It's a bit despairing. Which, which goes, to, I think, to, you know, uh, uh, the Christians. I mean, there are Christians in the world today, including China, incidentally, who do risk... Uh, imprisonment or even death just for being Christian. So you've got to say there's something a bit more serious about, you know, a, a genuine faith like Christianity as opposed to a woke faith. That's Nick Cater from Nick Cater's Battleground every Friday on ADH at 8pm. Now, before I go, you might recall I mentioned last week you should keep an eye on Jack Robinson, the young surfer from Margaret River in Western Australia who is now ranked second in the world and is a good chance at taking out the second last event of the year in Tahiti. Here he is a few years ago, tackling that very wave. The forecast is for a big swell to hit from tomorrow. Robinson, coming from Margaret River, is more fearless than most, and has a good chance of winning the event. From there, it's on to California for the five surfer showdown for the annual title. If he brings it home, he will be the first male surfer to win the title since Mick Fanning in 2013. We wish him luck. Well, that's all from me for this week. Thanks for watching. And remember, tell your friends to download the ADH app to their phones and TVs, where you can watch all that content live and on demand, and it's free. And I'll see you next week. Good night.